0: Connecticut and Massachusetts, z Homes Buys Houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem, we got ya. Google or add us on Facebook at Z-A-N-D-M Homes.com. What is it? What is it? It's Rexy's musical podcast. Throughout David Bowie's career, he was always known as a man who would never shy away from a good collaboration. We're all aware of the results of those collaborative efforts, whether it's with Brian Eno or Mick Ronson or Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Mott the Hoople, the guys from Queen or John Lennon or Mick Jagger or even Bing Crosby. But there are some other very important figures that need to be mentioned as well. And if you were going to point out David Bowie's number one collaborator, then it better damn well be Carlos Alomar. From 1974 until the early 2000s, Carlos Alomar was not only David Bowie's rhythm guitar player. He was David Bowie's musical director, playing on 11 albums, the most of any other musician in Bowie's entire catalog. From midway through the Diamond Dogs tour to Young Americans, Station to Station, the entire Berlin trilogy, right up until Bowie's 2003 album Reality, Carlos Alomar was almost a constant presence in David Bowie's career collaborating on arrangements and songwriting. For example, it was Carlos that came up with the guitar riff to Bowie's first and only number one single, Fame, a song he also wrote with some guy named John Lennon. And that's barely scratching the surface of what Carlos Alomar has achieved during his legendary career. This is a guy who would play with Paul McCartney, James Brown, Chuck Berry, the Bee Gees, Luther Vandross, Elisa Keys. Iggy Pop, Duran Duran, Benny King, Bruce Springsteen, Simple Minds, The Pretenders, The Main Ingredient, Joe Simon, Cyndi Lauper, Mick Jagger, and hundreds and hundreds more. Altogether, he's been involved in 32 gold or platinum records, countless tours, and has become one of the most respected musicians in history. The bottom line, Carlos Alomar is one of the most gifted, sought-after, and respected musicians in the world. And somehow, for whatever reason, He's joining me today on the podcast. This is my conversation with the incredible Carlos Alomar on Banksy's musical podcast. There we go. Can you hear me now? Now, now I hear you fine. Hallelujah.
1: <laughs> and the, the angels sang. <laughs> All
0: right. Sorry about that. That's quite all right. It's great to it's great to see you. I've been a, a, a big fan for an awful long time, so it's a real a, a real pleasure to finally get a chance to meet you.
1: You're very kind. Thank you. Um,
0: before we start, you know, I, I've been going through this this recent blast of of David Bowie related interviews. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to to George Murray, and I know he doesn't mm-hmm. do a lot of interviews, but he was he was just so cool. And what a what a really really you know nice warm hearted guy.
1: We call him a sweetheart.
0: He I mean he really he really is. And it's it's funny as I'm as I'm stumbling around researching, you know, him and I'm researching you. It's like you are like the Kevin Bacon of guitar. You're six degrees of separation from anyone who's ever played music ever. Your resume, even beyond David Bowie, is is so rich and full. You you must feel in, in a real sense how blessed you are to have the the career and the relationships that you've built over time.
1: The fact that you can use the word blessed is exactly the point. Sometimes, karmically speaking, we have no idea why things happen. For instance, I don't have anybody's telephone number. (laughs) How do these people reach me? I never asked what the six, you know, six degrees of separation, who gave you my, where did you get the reference from? Why does the phone keep re- I just walked through the door yesterday to find out Tina Turner died and broke down. Yeah, We have all these connections to people that we meet. If I don't record with them, I've toured with them. If I haven't toured with them, they were our opening act and we bonded with them. You know, It's like this situation where I get called in to do a lap job playing Quattro you know, or, or 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 Cindy Lauper calls me in to play mandolin, or I'm singing with uh, a Simple Minds. You know, you're getting these credits that are like, <laughs> I play bass with Scissor Sisters. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I keep everything down low because I don't need credit because my situation is just what you mentioned. If you want to be happy, learn gratitude, you know, and, and in being grateful, there is no... I'm not bragging, I'm not a bragger. I don't have an ego. I like to laugh.
0: (laughs) And that's not it, keep life simple. Well, I almost wondered if you've ever said no to anything.
1: My odyssey is just that I teach people very much so just that. What would happen if you say yes to everything? Life in itself is an odyssey and we should really be privileged to be able to carry that odyssey. Sometimes it's given to us as a legacy, But that's not our walk, really. We're just walking the walk. Yeah. Once we find out who we are, that's what our trip starts. So, yeah, yeah. Life is an odyssey. And so if you say yes to everything, then you have inherently what we would call, I guess, valor. Nobody understands those qualities of virtue. I'm not talking about courage where you get backed up against the wall and you kick an animal's ass (laughs) in a minute. But, uh, you know, the ability to say yes means that curiosity leads. And when you, you know what? You want to stay young? Stay curious. Yeah. <laughs> Don't touch that oven. I'm not touch that oven. i am going to touch <laughs> that oven
0: do not turn that corner. Oh, I'm going to turn that corner. And when
1: that was there, then you'll decide whether you want to turn that corner or touch that oven again.
0: Well, you you bring up, uh, you know, gratitude. I've always been a big believer in that. It's you know, it, it's hard to be positive about anything or have a good outlook on life unless you have that ability to be grateful for the things that have that have come your way. And like you said, without saying yes to things, you miss out on opportunities that you may regret later on. You know, opportunities that may really be profound and, and, and life-changing. And you're a guy who's had that time and time again.
1: I find that one of my greatest um, experiences while touring and doing all these things is meeting people. And uh, even superstars, although you might think of them in their aura of excellence... They're just people, man. <laughs> they fuck up. They, they have a <laughs> great time. But what I'm looking for in life, I think, I'm looking for a belly laugh. I'm tired of the tee-hee-hee. I'm, la- I'm tired of the chuckles. I'm, I'm tired of the laughing in your hand. I want to throw back my head and give a good belly laugh. Now, let me ask you, so, Michael, how many, how many people can give you a good belly laugh?
0: There are quite a few, actually.
1: Then you're a rich, you, then you're a rich man.
0: I, am I'm, I'm, I'm quick with a laugh. I'm at, uh, I, I, won't suppress that very often. That's for, for damn sure. You, you mentioned the, uh, the death of, uh, of Tina Turner this week, and I, I, I think that surprised everybody. You did play with her, or you spent time uh, with her?
1: Well, funny, there's a story I can tell you. We had to do the Tonight album, and that was with Tina Turner. David had hooked up a, a, a session with her. And he was extremely nervous to meet her um one of the things that we share in common is that i'm a buddhist as well as my wife robin and tina turner is a buddhist and so david was uh, you got to be there you got to be there carlos i'm really nervous and you know we're gonna have dinner and you got to be there and uh, you can talk to her and all that buddhism stuff and blah blah blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you know you, you meet these people under certain circumstances and and honestly they are private moments that you share and uh, with, you know, with your loved ones, they're not kind of, yes, we tell the story, but it's not the story. It's the sentiment that you feel when you're there. It's like one of those, you gotta be there. You know, um, <laughs> the nervousness that Tina had, the nervousness that David had. And yet when they kicked it, first of all, David loved Tina. I mean, when he found out he was, like, that was like, I mean, there are certain <laughs> places where you, you reach nirvana on earth, you know? And, uh, she was so sweet. She's just a very sweet person, and very, very humble. And it's amazing to see someone who has gone through so much and shown an uh, an example of of um, excellence as far as her conduct is concerned, and courage. Again, the valor that we talked about—you know—to be able to run and still live. Yeah. Um, you know. So uh, uh, they were both in awe of each other, and uh, you know what? After that, camaraderie set in, and that's it. Best friends for life.
0: And like you said, you know, you talk about the gratitude aspect of it. Has there ever been anyone that was more grateful of her situation than a Tina Turner, considering what she had been through and then what she, you know, she would do with her life once she had the ability to control her own actions? I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable testament to exactly what you just talked about.
1: Yeah, the humanity of it all is about the example. Blah, blah, blah is blah, blah, blah. But for you to take your life, reconstruct your life, and still emerge as yourself, oh my God, Amazing. that's godlike. That's godlike if anything else. You know, to the pursuit of happiness, that's Tina Turner. Yeah. And if anybody can show you that, come on. <laughs> hey, truth, justice, and the American way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah,
0: I found myself getting really interested in your beginnings here because is I'm reading it, you know, you you start guitar at the age of ten, you go through some you know some personal things with your with your family. Your dad died at the age of fourteen, and then suddenly out of this situation, you know, the guitar winds up being your salvation in a, in, a, in a pretty profound way. And then within a couple of years, you're joining the house band of the Apollo Theater before you're even old enough to graduate high school. Yeah. To me, that's just a remarkable. I don't know if it's if it's if you just dedicate yourself to the craft of learning how to play guitar or, or what it is. Tell me about those early years and how the connection for music for you was, was important.
1: Okay. I'll start out with a phrase and that'll kind of blanket everything else. Okay. Passion wakes you up in the morning and passion won't let you go to sleep at night.
0: That's interesting.
1: Okay. So (laughs) as a young kid, you learn three chords because you got this instrument. The instrument is horrible. A stellar guitar, the action was so high. He was like playing a damn Kyoto or something. <laughs> anyway, you get this instrument, you know, three chords. But your father tells you, okay, look, this, there's responsibility and obligation. Responsibility, you get a guitar, you better learn how to play it. Okay, obligation. Now you're the only musician in church. <laughs> No matter what song you came, I played G, C, and D. I don't care what key you're singing in. (laughs) You better conform to my three chords or else you're gonna be be out of tune. Anyway, that that amount of, 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 again, valor, courage, uh, to just do it. And then my father allowed me to go and buy something in a music store. He would have thought I bought a book, like you said, of instruction, blah, blah, blah. Man, I saw Mel Bay Guitar Dictionary, 1200 chords. Dude, so I just (laughs) three chords, man, three chords. When I learned that, that was it. I developed an ear because I wanted to learn how to supplement these chords. And so you hear about these kids that don't have any musical training, but they have a real good ear. When you learn all these things and suddenly you have a million amateurs stepping up to the microphone and the people in church, they don't have a key, they just (laughs) sing. And me, I'm trying. okay, what key are they in I have to find it. I was jamming the minute I learned those 12,000 1200 chords, I was about to use all of them. And so in doing that, I developed this technique of playing what we call rhythm lead. And that I learned it from Jimi Hendrix. And the reason was, Jimi Hendrix had big fingers and his, his, his thing was, if you have if one finger is loose, I could do a lot of damage with that one finger. <laughs> and so when I would play a chord, any loose finger that was there would be playing lead on top of it. They call it leading tones. Anyway, that's the way I started. And so when I was recruited into Listen to My Brother at the, as a uh, ensemble that was being uh, um, developed by the Apollo Theater, uh, this young troupe of about 16 singers represented the Apollo Theater in all events So during all the uh, Harlem riots of what, 65 and things like that, we were in Marvis Garvey Park, you know, playing, uh, you know, uh, stand up and you know, uh, you've got to make a stand somewhere, you've got to stand stand up. I mean, and we were writing our own materials. You had to do skits to introduce the song, everything. We had to go to the Lorac Bay dancers to learn African dancing. I mean, I'm Puerto Rican, there's no water. What the hell am I doing? Anyway, all of these things are a form of education that are given to us by the epitome of professionalism, the Apollo Theater. I mean, imagine having people like, you know, uh, Red Fox come down to give you advice. Uh, Flip Wilson comes down to tell you blah, blah, blah. Uh, Nancy Wilson comes down to congratulate you and tell you what a great thing and what, what. we had to do choreography. They are homework go upstairs and watch the Temptations do their dancing. I was so good that the the, uh, one of the guy, the guy that plays the piano, George Stubbs, an elderly gentleman, he was, he had a Farfisa organ. He said, Carlos, you want to play with me a little bit after, you know, after our joints? Yeah, sure. Hell yeah. (laughs) Uh, Listen, I want you to learn the top 10 and learn the bass part, the guitar part and all the horn parts. This way if he has a he has a farfisa organ he has a right hand and the bass on the left. If he didn't feel like playing the left hand, he can just play it solo and I and I had a good ear. So I would hear the top 10, I would learn them and I didn't need any music. And then you get called in the same guy, "Hey man, I need you for the amateur hour." Okay. Now I'm about 15, 16 years old. This is like we have the youngest guitar player. They used to I used to be in the basement. The guitar player from ruben phillips orchestra who backs all the you know the major singers I, they needed a sub who did they call <laughs> well, oh, but remember i was in part of the union and eight that was the union house local 802 so they, they used to hide me <laughs> until the union <laughs> man the union man would come around cards <laughs> you said <laughs> you have to show them your union card make sure you're paid up to date and they would hide me, and then I would come up. So yeah, that's where you know I met uh, James Brown, who also needed a substitute. You know, during those years, I got I got called into uh, what was it called, uh, uh, Rye Playland, to work with Chuck Berry. You remember when they used to have the live performances? Sure. And- what the hell? It's crazy. So I mean, you're
0: you're a teenager as all this is as this is happening, and you're in one of the most famous musical theaters in the world, in the in the Apollo. I mean, how did you go through that and not be in- intimidated by that situation? I mean, you know, James Brown, Chuck Berry; these guys were, you know, legendary at the time that you were a teenager. How did you manage yourself through that at such a young age?
1: Uh, you got to remember, it wasn't about them; it was about me. Who the hell are they? <laughs> think about it. It's true. I know, yep. I know, I know names, but I'm 16 years old, dude. Come <laughs> on, don't make me think like a 20 year old or 25 or 72. <laughs> No, 16 year olds are like, thank you very much, sir. I mean, think about it. Come on. I'm a kid. A lot of people forget I was a kid. But look who I was a kid. And you know who I was surrounded by? Oh, Luther Vandross on this side, you know, the singer, Robin Clark, you know, over here, Now Rogers over there trying to get my gig, you know, (laughs) Dennis Davis over there playing jazz with, you know. And through those connections, I need a guitar player, you know. Uh, hey, I'm playing with this guy. I know this guy, Carlos, you know.
0: Your association with the the two people that you just mentioned, you know, Luther Vandross, who was one of your best friends, and I think you became kind of close to, to Robin, too, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If i I'm mistaken. Her, I locked her down when I was uh, 18, and, I mean, you know what? When you find the true love, and she's a singer, and she was already making money doing commercials. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs>
0: But you're not just talking just any singers. I mean, you know, Robin and, and Luther are like, I mean, just unbelievably brilliant vocalists to be in that environment with that much talent. I mean, it, I mean, tell me what the, what it was like to be hanging out with those guys.
1: You know, something. Uh, um, excellence rises to the top, I think, and even in a group you find out who it is that you're attracted to based on their, their you know, due diligence and I think excellence. Um, and uh, that being said, they just gravitate towards each other. It doesn't you know, like minds, that kind of thing. Look, we know full well that talent has a lot to do with everything. But another thing is personality. When it comes to music, musicians have to be portraying their music through their personality. And so what we find is the minute they hit the last note, look, musicians are weird. They play, they don't even have to know each other. They play, and the minute they hit the last note, "T, tarump <laughs> <laughs> They start cackling like hands and laughing why we just had a good old time. That's all, that's all it takes. And look, you don't have to be the best singer. But if you gave to the whole and the whole became right, then that's who you get when you want that sound. If I've got a soprano, I don't need another soprano. I ain't looking for another soprano. But if I find an alto, oh, I'm gonna chase (laughs) her. I need an alto. (laughs) And if the alto that I have messes up, then I know who the second alto is gonna be. (laughs) you see so again it's one of those things for musicians it's rather odd here's an example let's say i have a rolodex or a telephone book full of numbers man if you need a bass player even if my brother is a bass player i'm going to give you the number of the best player that i know so that i could look good (laughs) and you you owe me a favor
0: there That's the isn't that the way it is? Isn't that it the way is, it always it is? is. Yeah. Sorry about
1: that, boys. Well, yeah,
0: I've I've done a couple of interviews with the uh, with the uh, musicians, and and one of the things that, that a number of them have said is is you don't last long in music if you are an asshole. You oh just, man, you just you just don't, and and that like is a metastasizing situation where once you start acting like a jerk, it follows you everywhere.
1: Life is like that. Yeah. They won't tell you, but they won't hold. They won't sustain you as you fall they'll watch that fall and just go oh oh oh, oh, oh there there he goes <laughs> let me push him on, let me push him while he's go, go faster go go away <laughs> uh it, it's the same everywhere it doesn't really have to do with musicians it's just the way it is i mean we are human and although people give us the accolades for our 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 our, our excellence again uh, once you meet them, like you said, if you're an asshole, the music doesn't count anymore. <laughs> right. In fact, I'm not buying any more of your records. I might destroy the ones I have. <laughs> so, again, it's only human. We're trying to make it something it's not.
0: It's, I mean, it's, it's, there's no denying that. So, but the early 70s, so, you know, suddenly you're becoming you know, uh, like a sought-after session session museum. I saw a great video the other day. You playing with the main ingredient, which I thought was awesome, on uh, the midnight special. They're all dressed in suits, and you're in the back. Uh, just, just what an Afro! Oh my God! Yes, it was. Yes, a it was. I don't. I, yeah, you know, I wasn't going to point that out, but it was. It sign was. of just, the times, man. Yeah, <laughs> of the times. I totally understand that, but you know, eventually, as you're going through, you know, these sessions, you wind up being called for a session to uh, to play with Lulu, and David Bowie is producing those sessions. Tell me about that, and 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 the conversations between you that ultimately led to you joining him in in Young Americans.
1: Well, the Lulu sessions in themselves, I think, were not the reason I think that the Lulu sessions showed him that I was able to immediately cope with a song that he already knew. And so when I started playing it, I was adding a flavor that was kind of nice, because look, when you're doing a cover of your own song, you know what you hear in your mind's ear. So when someone embellishes it in a way that you hadn't heard, it will impress you. But again, it has nothing to do with talent. Many guitar players could have done equally as well. But when I tell you, man, you look like shit, you need to eat. <laughs> I'm not, it's not about David Bowie. It's about Carlos Salomar. Who the hell tells a person that you look like shit? I didn't say, hey, you know, you're a little thin, or uh, you should really, I mean, he was 98 pounds, orange hair and white skin. Like you said, I'm a guy with an Afro, probably wearing a dashiki. So, (laughs) you know, when worlds collide, you know, (laughs) the thing was, I told him, you need to eat. Why don't you come to my place? I lived in, in Queens. The fact that he would actually come to Queens, man, was I chasing him or was he chasing me? Who the hell goes out to Queens? Hello, <laughs> Queens, dude. All right, he comes out to Queens. Oh my God, he wants to know exactly like you, yeah. Chuck Berry. What was it like, James Brown? Main ingredient, the Apollo Theater, Harlem, dude. I <laughs> want to know everything. I'm like Spider Samaras. England. I love <laughs> your accent. <laughs> my wife, would you like another piece? <laughs> Some more ratchet, Um that is what does it. Of course, when he got there, I had my pedals and everything. Remember I told you I had learned the whole Jimi Hendrix album. Right. You heard me as a type of guitar player that can play sweet stuff and play a little, put a little R&B to, you know, to your music. But then I hook up my stuff, my big muff, and I play, I could play the full Jimi Hendrix album by myself. <laughs> He knew I could rock it. Yeah. The disguise of being a, everybody, Carlos Alomar, the funk mice, they don't know jack shit, all right? <laughs> if I got out there and played a quattro or a, or a mandolin or viola, my first instrument, I mean, he's meeting me thinking that I'm R&B and the Apollo, and yet here I am playing Jimi Hendrix like I wrote it. And so we had a great time. And I think that is the human experience that bonded us, not necessarily through music, but through the act of learning who we are in essence and realizing I need that essence. Your humor is exemplary and you are fucking crazy, Carlos. (laughs) You are too, David. Me and David, there are those moments where you know what's happening when it's not what you said above breath, it's what you say underneath it. right? and why are you guys always huddled in the corner laughing david and i laugh a lot because the humor intensity that we have we know what we want we know what we need and we know how to get it and we know how to say it you know and so that that's that's how we bonded i don't think it really should be attributed to music later on Music holds us together as the challenges that we face, we meet together, and it reinforces musically our dependency. But it was always an issue of the humanity of David and, and myself.
0: I've heard that time and time again from other people that have that have worked with him. I interviewed Adrian Ballou, uh a, a while back, and you know he didn't spend a long time with with David, but certainly enough to get to know him. And uh, you know they worked together later on in in Adrian's career. And he kind of said the same thing. It's like you know the, the the image that people had of David Bowie was that he was a distant type of guy. But once you got to know him you know as a, as an individual, this artifice came down. And what you found out that he was just a very warm, friendly, hilarious, loyal guy. And it's kind of cool to to hear that, you know from from your heroes that you realize, okay, like you said, they are human beings, and the people that are closest to him kind of repeat the same thing. So, you know, there's, there's got to be great truth to, to those kinds of comments about him.
1: We should always remember that, like we always said here, there's a human element to all this. You know, we mustn't forget that. Even, even David, all of us, Tina myself, it doesn't matter. And by that I mean this. We can judge David's personality because as a Capricorn, he's calculated, he's extremely intelligent, and he will not be caught in an implemented trap. That being said, we can now look at his personality as we see him doing interviews and facing the public, and realize that he comes totally intact, and you will not be putting any holes in that ship and sinking it anytime (laughs) soon. That ability for him to calculate his essence and his presence on screen or wherever he is, is very important because that's the nature of his personality. But now we must talk about his character. That is what we're really, really trying to define.
0: I think one of the things that that really speaks volumes about his character is at the time, you know, there were very, very few mainstream Caucasian artists out there that were intentionally playing with with people of color. It wasn't necessarily, I don't know if it was necessarily racist, but just wasn't even a real consideration. Here he is. He's already like the biggest pop star in the world, and he's putting together, uh, you know, this incredible band with you and Dennis Davis and, and and George Murray and creating maybe one of the greatest rhythm sections that's ever been assembled. And I think it's important for people to understand that he was doing that at a time when not a whole lot of people were acknowledging the fact that white and black and Hispanic people can can play together and do it the right way because. Was I'm listening to uh, to Young Americans the other day and I'm listening to Station to Station and, the, and, and and low, I'm thinking, Jesus, this is the biggest, greatest funk band I think there's ever been. And it's all because David had the, the kind of... He was open enough and welcoming enough to allow that to happen and allow you guys to play the way you played. Did you feel that he was doing something pretty remarkable as far as diversity was, was concerned or, or was that not really a consideration based upon your personal relationship with the guy.
1: We must remember that we can't separate the two. Be fools to think that one is an absolute. <laughs> Look, uh, we can start this conversation by saying what's in a name. That's all there is to it. David Bowie had, um, okay. David Bowie had the spiders from Mars. All right. The spiders from Mars is a great trade name. <laughs> Who was in the spiders from Mars? A lot of people might not know that answer. Maybe Ronson might stick out a little bit, maybe. But quite honestly, it is the brand of the spiders from Mars that really takes the forefront, always in conversation, and we get that, what's in a name. David Bowie now has found, and I'm gonna label this one under, sound and vision. (laughs) The sound is a very, very important sound, here's why. David Bowie took a black rhythm section to Europe, hmm. had them record stuff in Europe and then import it back into America. That's really weird. David <laughs> Bowie finds this rhythm section and keeps them with them forever. Nobody mentions them. And yet you're right. You have got one of the most powerful, he, he wanted craft work essence he wanted metronome he wanted electronica he wanted a sound he wanted precision he wanted a lot of things and when he found just like me i can flip on a dime i've got a great ear dennis davis can do a role with one hand dennis davis can play 25 drums and not have a problem with hitting each one in a song george murray is a lead guitar player that plays bass. You have got now this funk rhythm section that is amazing. And you can't tell what kind of music they are because they do transit. And I'm doing arrangements. These arrangements, if you go from one to four, dun, 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 I'm like, what happened to one, two, three, four? Dun, 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 dun. I was able to flip things around. Why? These guys can do anything. And if you throw a little pebble into that lake, the rippling effect at the end is a wave, man. <laughs> and when that got back to David, David would throw a bone. And when we munched on that bone and gave it back, it was a sculpture. <laughs> All right. The vision of sound and vision. David had a vision and that craft work essence is exactly right. Back in my daughter said, dad, you need to start a website. And so I started doing the website and I thought, you know, Carlos if anybody wants to go. um, And I thought I'd put a little number in there. And so I decided the making of the damn trio, what the hell are you talking about? I actually, in that interview, labeled it, Dennis Davis, Carlos Alomar, George Murray, the damn trio. And gave a little story about how funny it was when I, you know, I said, damn, no, we should make it mad. No, 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 we should, (laughs) nobody knows about anything. And yet that one little article, gave a name to that trio. The damn trio. Once I did that on my website, every reference that was ever made now became the damn trio. <laughs> now, does anybody know George Murray, Dennis Davis, Carlos They might know Carlos Alomar. We're getting into the same loop as the spiders from Mars. We now have a name, even if it's after the fact, it doesn't matter. Recognition has now been given to a band that was playing more albums than the Spiders from Mars, different kind of music than the Spiders from Mars, transformational progressions and and aesthetics to music. The Spiders from Mars were a one trick pony in a one trick pony world. You cannot morph a band like that into what was needed in the future. It's just not the way it works.
0: That yeah. especially makes sense as you transition from station to station into the Berlin Trilogy, Low, Heroes, and The Lodger. What band could pivot like that?
1: It's, it's the essence of the vision of David Bowie. Look, David Bowie put together the Soul Review show after Diamond Dogs, to huge, of course, we got spit on and called all kind of N-words and all kind of stuff in the beginning, but after that, a huge success. So, like a snake that has to grow, you have to shed your skin. He did it once, and then he dropped everybody, just like he dropped his bodies from up. The fact that he he called me back, I was in sho- I'm in shock every time David calls me back. Hmm. I am grateful, but remember, like you did when you look at my resume. Every time I did one album for David Bowie, I did three albums for somebody else. <laughs> I have got a song playing every year since 1973. Amazing. Um, Alicia Keys to anybody, it, it just keeps going all the way through. And so the vision of David Bowie to be able to have a fantastic band and still let them go looking for transitional areas that he can maybe accommodate himself into, that is the vision of David Bowie. The sound of David Bowie is still morphing. You look at all the tribute bands, you know, similar to the ones that we have at the Bowie convention, you know, the Sons of the Silent Days, you know, uh, the Men Who Fell to Earth. You know, these are covered bands that honor David Bowie because of his ability to be transformational. Remember, if you have to play a set list of David Bowie, man, you better have rock, you better have R&B, you better have funk. Dude, you hear me? Absolutely. If you're going to copy David Bowie, and look, which David Bowie, as a fan, do you really love?
0: You know, it, a, it, a Ziggy I,
1: fan is not. It,
0: it's really, it's really hard because as much as I love Ziggy Stardust and as much as I love Aladdin Sane, when I go back and I reach for a a Bowie album to listen to, the ones that that really have grabbed me over the course of you know twenty thirty years, it's Station to Station. It's low. It's heroes. It's like, you know, that, you know that's like the, the, the meat of the, of the David Bowie lineup to yes. me. And I, I agree with you. Those early records are great. But there's something so remarkably engaging and new and different and, 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 and powerful than those three albums right there.
1: It is amazing to think that music is, in fact, a time capsule. You want better times once you put the right record on, you'll be shaking your buttons, forgetting all your all the cares and woes of the world. Yeah. You, know? you can just lose yourself in your music. You will definitely put yourself in the place of enjoying life the way you used to.
0: Yeah. I was just yeah. listening to, to Young Americans the other day. It's like one of those albums that I, I don't necessarily listen to as much as I should. And when I listened to it again just the other day, I'm like, why am I not listening to this one more often? It's absolutely fantastic. And it's like, it, it's just so soulful and the vocals and
1: they call it sweet soul music for a reason. Don't put on <laughs> scary monsters. <laughs> no, not, it's not all even... scary monsters for a reason, man. Yeah, the trilogy, and we had to like when we got back to David, we had finished that trilogy. We were like, dude, please, no, no more of those swell songs, man. <laughs> that's why when you hear scary monsters, that's like hundred beats per minute for like the whole thing.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, that's why I would never put on the lodger uh, you know for like a, like a romantic night at home. That would not, That would not be. The first one I would grab, yeah. but yeah. It, it's so interesting to me when you, so like I told you, there was a, there was a video I saw where you guys are playing stay and Adrian blue is in that, in that band. And there's a point where David is just, he's just sitting back and he is marveling at the band that he has. And he has a, a certain, you can see it in his face, the amount of gratitude he, that he has that he's not only found the right people, but these people are putting in place the exact vision that he's wanted to do during this entire period of, of his career. That whole Berlin trilogy is so important you know, for him artistically because he's, he has worked his way up to have enough clout that he can do whatever experimentation he wants to do. And he nails it. But he wouldn't have been able to do that without that caliber of, of musicianship helping him do it. And I think that says a lot about how he feels about you professionally and, and bringing you into a world that's got Tony Visconti and you know, Robert Fripp and Brian Eno and that you know, these are additional pieces, but the basic core are these three guys playing the rhythm section.
1: One of the things that happens as a band leader is that you have to understand who the soloist is and who the invited guest is. These are very important aspects, and we learn this in jazz and all that stuff only because you have to accommodate the soloist and the progressions that he's going to give you. When you have a rhythm section like us, when we start playing something it's like the James Brown thing hit me boom the minute you make a move we're going to hit that and accent that in the music so as a power trio. When we are playing with each other and what they consider rehearsing something we're not just rehearsing something we're finding out where the hits are. And now if David just feels like doing one of those crazy choreographed gestures, then he finds out that when he goes, hey, and he hears that quang, he's like, okay, okay, let me see if I can't test these boys. (laughs) He'll be trying to, just like James Brown, except you see James Brown did it because every time he did it, if you didn't do it, he would find you. David Bowie (laughs) didn't find you. But he found that with that type of situation, this rhythm session can follow and not lose a a stride. So when you have Adrian Blue and David Bowie says, okay, I've done my part, take it boys. He's gonna step back because He doesn't know what the fuck we're gonna do. (laughs) And so don't you think that is the most, and look, we're not playing the same. Can you play that solo that you played last week? Are you out of your mind? I don't even know what the hell I did, let alone replicate it, come on. And so all these moments on stage, are golden moments. You can record what you want in Amsterdam, but don't think you're going to get the same thing when we hit London. Yeah. You can hear a solo in one place, but when you see it live, it's not going to be the same. So, I mean, it's impossible. We just don't work like that. Why? If we feel like doing something as a rhythm section, Adrian blue will pick up on it. I say, oh, not know you tricky buggers. You're not, not going <laughs> to catch me like that. I can, I, I, I can catch you." And then he'll hit me back with something else. And I, you see this type of play, Comes and when, when, what do you see on stage? These fools are smiling and carrying on like you, like the audience doesn't exist.
0: So it's all—it's almost no wonder when you when you nail it, you, like you say, all you can do is laugh about it because it's—it's just—it's. I don't know if it's a relief that it's over, or just you know, it's just an, a, a a release of of that moment.
1: Well, let me give you the word. You're struggling. <laughs> it's called joy. <laughs> you have to remember, happiness is not just happiness. Rapture is not just rapture. Joy is all of these different things that we hear about. But you got to understand, uh, a giggle is not a belly laugh. Joy is something that you reach. You know, I wasn't aiming for it. But man, when we hit it, we didn't know. We passed through fire and at the end, all right, <laughs> we didn't get burned. We, will we do it again? I don't know yeah we'll see tomorrow. we'll see what tomorrow brings,
0: so I was uh, listening to another interview that you had done, and I know you explained this a, a bunch of times about uh about the the song fame and you know that was David's first number one hit and you know in spite of what the rumors and the mythology may be about this song uh they both David and John Lennon basically uh wind up getting credited for what really is a Carlos Alomar solo song <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh but but tell me about about that. You're in a room with with David and John Lennon. You come up with something uh, for these guys. Say, hey, listen to this. And all of a sudden, that moment leads to one of the biggest hits of his career. Tell me about uh, about the reality of of that situation with uh, with fame.
1: All right, fame was actually foot stomping, and we did that. And you can see that I think on the Dick Cavett show, one of those. And we did it on tour. You could also see it there. Some songs do not truly translate into the, when you record them, they just end up being flat. And that's a very odd thing because sometimes it's in the wrong key and it's just a flat key. You know, some things just don't replicate themselves the way you thought they would. When you record, even if you play the same way, it just goes on too long and it's the same thing. And it's just, David had already done it on stage. And when he recorded it, he kind of lost his flavor for it. I mean, it happens. And you know what? We record a lot of songs that don't end up on the album. Sometimes they get canned and you see them on a new re-release of the album. So let's not forget, there's a lot of material that we did that don't see the light of day. Anyway, that was discarded and put on the side. Later on, after we finish the actual album, we get together in um, uh, uh, Electric Lady. And what David has done is chopped it up so that it basically has what we call a blues format, 1454. Anybody, if you just look at it that way, it's the same. And so what we end up with is drums and bass. That is the essence of what was there when this all came down. Let's not confuse all the guitars and all that other stuff. There is nothing there but boom, 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 boom. I felt like I was playing Louie Louie same progressions you know bb king everybody so basically david is looking at a blues song so for him to call me up to do a blues song i mean there's nothing wrong with that all right but there's no guitar lennon comes in and basically just strums a little blues dude it's not a big deal i mean it's okay but it's just strumming it's just the participation of him being there that's most important yeah. But he puts his head down, and on in the booth, he kind of breathes.
0: <sighs>
1: <laughs> we put on the track, so suddenly, we, we, we kind of like, I hear something. And once we isolate the track, we find him kind of <sighs> So that kind of thing happens. And David swears, he says, fame. Now, let's understand something a little bit more important than all of that. I know nothing about the writing. I do the music. There's always an author. And a composer. Right. I'm the composer. I'm the guy that does the music. When it comes to the words, don't even think that that's not David. It's always David. All right. So let's understand. Any participation that he gives us is another thing altogether. So how the words came out, whether he gave him credit for all that, that's not on me. You know, ask anybody. But when it comes to the music, I heard what they did. And I I, I already had some thoughts because you remember, it's just the blues. Robin had worked with a band. I have to I have to go sideways now. Robin had worked with a band called Full Moon. Okay. Full Moon had a guitar player called Buzzy Feeton. He played on, uh, uh, I think, Superwoman by uh, uh, Stevie Wonder. I mean, excellent. One of my super superheroes. He's one of them. Okay. He, he had a song called Jungle Walk with the Rascals that I learned that song like I learned old Jimi Hendrix. And there were certain components to that song that as a blues player, and like any, any guitar player, you grab a little bit of this, you grab a little bit, there's a song called, you can call me Rover with the main ingredient that had that, and I took a little bit from that. You know, there's of course the slap down I got from, a uh, 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 james brown when i thought i was the only guitar player and there were three guitar players and i'm, I'm over there p- over playing like crazy the dude is like young, yo young blood slow down pick apart don't disturb the groove and you know i i need three guitar parts i got all this stuff going on in my head i'm awed because here comes david bowie may pang and john lennon that's who came that was who, that who was in the room there was nobody else right. no matter what you hear Anyway, that was uh, it. Okay. And uh, Harry Hunt Maslin. uh, um, they finished and they're all nice. You know, they was cool. You know, you participated. Excellent. Let's go get something to eat. Carlos, you want to come and let's have dinner, man. I was hearing those other two guitar parts, man. <laughs> and I had to tell <laughs> David Bowie and John Lennon. I, I hear something, David. I, I I'd rather stay here and put this down and, you know, I'll catch you guys later. which I, I never did. Um, they left. <laughs> Once that door closed, I looked at Harry and said, okay, man, let's get to work. And then I started layering and layering and layering, just like James Brown. I've laid down the first part. I like it. Don't touch anything. Lay down the second part. You know, I don't need this. Get rid of that. And the next thing you know, all these interlocking parts. And because I left all the holes, when David Bowie came back and he heard this funky, (laughs) mysterious, creepy... And look, they always told me when you're playing funk music, don't disturb that groove, man. If I lay a pocket down, don't go playing stuff and filling up the holes and killing my pocket. <laughs> that song has such a heavy pocket in it.
0: Huge pocket.
1: Huge pocket. And when you heard that, it was like, Ding. oh, shit. Hold oh man. <laughs> oh, what the hell is that coming from a a, 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 a white guy? <laughs> I'm talking about, and who was on the, wait a minute, who was on the radio? The Captain and Tennille?
0: Yeah, right.
1: Hello, let's not forget the sign of the times, man. And you're, now you're on Soul Train, dude, come on. Fame, the fame, uh, you know, the fact that I got credit for it is just uh, honoring David Bowie once again. Yeah. This is, you know, this, this young kid, look, I, uh, David Bowie was, what, five years older than me. I mean, we were, we were friends at that point. And so for him to give me credit, I was like over the top. It made my life. And so remember, I was already married. And so when you meet a married couple that's so young, we're Buddhists, we, we got it together, we don't need anybody. I turned David Bowie down three times. I mean, when you turn somebody down, they really want you. <laughs> And you know what? There's respect there. Yeah. I always knew what I call, you must know the value of your worth. And you have to make sure that you don't compromise your own self-worth for something that's not really aspirational enough to, to sustain you. I mean, basically, I'm saying don't sell your soul to the devil, man. Right.
0: Well, <laughs> and, and that's a really good point. I mean, how many, how many other people in general will kind of acquiesce to other pressures? and, and- you know, take themselves out of what makes them great or what, you know, or, or, or their strength and just, you know, does it because somebody else wants them to, you know, where, whereas with you, he's given you, he's given you the chance to express yourself like in, in fame. You know, I mean, there are many artists who would say, no, I, I, let's wait till I come back because I'm, I'm the key to this whole thing. When in this situation, he let you hold the keys and you, and you, Rushed it. I mean, it was a huge hit for him.
1: Let me show you how much of a big it for me. <laughs> Luther Vandross swore that funky music was going to be that single. He yeah. knew that David was going to be, funky music? You want funky? It says funky music. I mean, uh, he called it fascination. And so as far as Luther was concerned, his song was going to be the hit and his love. So when David came, dude, you know, the, it wasn't a problem, but it was sure challenging for us to, to you know, offer for, for Luther. Yeah, and of course, it was David's first number one hit.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and, and it's a shame that Luther was never able to uh, recover from any of that.
1: <laughs> put together yeah, so a decent career for. Yeah, I'm Go on to his his career. You know, oh <laughs> <laughs> my goodness, his career
0: <laughs> So the the uh, the this convention that's happening in New York, the uh, the Bowie World Fan Convention. Uh, you you're a part of that. There's a bunch of people. You know, Tony Visconti's going to be there. Uh, you know, George Murray, obviously, a bunch of other people. What is the your role in that do you have like a like a specific thing that you're going to be doing while you're there or are you just going to be you know meeting and greeting and shaking hands while you're there
1: well i think that it's important for us to say everything <laughs> <laughs> i mean how could it not be all yeah. right look i think it's important for us to have a tier level situation here because all things are not created equal even if you want to so, if they offer you a VIP ticket, then the VIP comes with certain luxuries that a VIP ticket should cost. And so, the value of the worth of that VIP ticket is evident when you start looking at the uh, greets, the meet and greets, the photo opportunities with real cameras and real lights. you can get it, all of these little, but it doesn't stop all of the panel discussions that will be happening with conversations similar to this. Yeah. Also, question and answer. Let me explain something about the last uh, convention because the first one was in London and it was unbelievable. Oh my God, it was just one of the reasons that we're doing this one is because of that one. And what I will explain to the fan base is very simple. We're older, young hmm. kids want to know stupid shit, <laughs> old people want to justify their lives old people want to know that it was worth it for them to be 60 and still be able to go to a bowie ball with a damn lightning bolt on their face there's a pride of ownership of who your culture is that you can take a bowie ball even when you're an elder and be in there with the young kids too there's a certain A question that has a more spiritual bent to it that you can ask to know about David's spiritual aspect. Did he ever talk to you, you know, there's so many questions that you want to have as a person of age to justify your reason for having held his banner up for so long. And one of the things that I find that this time in my life, I'm older, I have acquired a certain amount of wisdom that allows me to ponder instead of think and to be able to disseminate all this information and explain it in a way that shows the humanity of David Bowie through my eyes. Yeah. Also, it allows you to connect the dots. We don't know who David Bowie could possibly be unless you find out who his associates were. Nobody knows me, and yet they now can reach me and touch me and realize who I am and the essence of what it was like for David Bowie to be speaking to Carlos Alomar. And what type of feedback, now that you've heard Carlos Alomar, what type of feedback and conversation did those two people have? I can only you imagine, have, yeah. You have, you have met Brian Eno and sp- seen how he speaks and the way that, that is not a thinker. He ponders heavily as I do. You listen to him and you wonder what kind of damn conversations Could they have had to eat? You listen, I don't have, there's two sides of the glass. On this side, Carlos Salomar speaks to to David Bowie about music and the like. On the other side of the glass, he speaks to Tony Visconti about the production value of everything that's coming at them. I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. (laughs) They have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Right. (laughs) This is where we begin the vision that we talked about, about David Bowie, mini sessions, have the rhythm section, rehearse everything that they're going to do over there yeah, and then have the vocalist with the piano, do something over here with the, with the soloist. And then you put them together and the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Brian Eno will do 24 tracks of amazing material and then call me in and only let me hear two tracks. And then he says, Listen, uh, I want you to play from 52 to 97. I'm like, What are you talking about? And then you hear, you don't hear a click, you hear three, four, 96, 97. And then I hear this. What the (laughs) fuck is that? All right. (laughs) Stop. Now, I have no relevance to anything that's going on. I don't know what the hell it's a part of. And then after I finish playing what I'm playing, then they bring up all 24 tracks. And now I'm submerged in this holy shit moment. What the hell is that? Amazing. The parts equal the whole. But you must not let everyone hear the whole for fear that they'll start jamming on top of it. Control your environment to control the outcome, and then edit that. That's it. The, cho- the choices are amazing when you look at the methodologies that you learn and how you piggyback those methodologies based on the, the, the people that can give you what you want. If it doesn't work this way, he's got 15 different methodologies <laughs> to mess with you, to give you something that will take you out of your comfort zone, but keep the talent. And then come up with something that he says. That's what I wanted. And you go, what? <laughs> That's okay. amazing. That's Okay, amazing. Thanks. I'm done. Okay. I do.
0: Yeah. Uh, I do want to ask you, like, you, know, you, know, one more, one more thing. Because you know, at the end of his career, David uh, released his final album, Black Star. Uh, and I know you did not play on that on that album. But when I heard it, and I got it almost immediately, it came out, and he, I think he died you know, two or three days after that. When I heard it for the very first time, I felt goosebumps over my entire body. I have never heard an album that I think affected me the way that one did. I think I got to know David Bowie better in that album than maybe any other album that he had ever released. It, I assume that you have probably have heard it or have gone through, you, gone through it. You have not. You've never heard Star.
1: I heard a song or two. Yeah, I have never tried to put that album on to this day.
0: Why is that?
1: I don't want to hear it. I don't yeah. want to hear the end. I don't want to, I don't want to know the end. I don't want to hear the end. I don't want to see the end. There is no end in my mind's eye. And so I like commas. I don't need periods. <laughs> And so I'd rather let the continuation of that paragraph finish in my mind than hear any words that might solidify a thought or anything that I might see that might bring me sadness. Yeah. And so I would prefer to keep the image the way that I control than to let that overlay and totally demolish every feeling that I've already accommodated to sustain his his his, his you know, the fact that he's gone. Yeah. So for me to listen to the album would put a period on everything, and it's not necessary for me right now. And so I'll keep that little box closed, and there will be a day that I'll need to open it. Yeah. But there's needs and wants, and I've learned how to control my wants.
0: It's a remarkable answer. I, I, I. I thank you for that, because it makes... As as a fan and someone who, as as just a fan, I know how profound it was for me. But then to keep that that door open for all of us who who loved what he did and what he did with with you specifically, that was really good to hear. So thank you for that. That was really I appreciate I appreciate that answer maybe more than if you said Oh yeah, I love that album from top to bottom. That was actually a better answer. So thank you. I think that
1: uh, I think that a lot of the albums we love them for their time. But there is, there is no best, really. There's only better. Yep. And so every album is as good as it gets until the next album. I mean, we can't foresee the future. And so everything will be fantastic and the best for 1974 (laughs) and the (laughs) best for 1975. So there is no best, there is only better. And even better is subjective. So everybody has their albums, everybody has their Bowie, and everybody has their epoch or their era or their time. You know, the odyssey continues.
0: Carlos, this has been a, a real joy to talk to you and, and to, to Did share this you the say stuff joy? You. I said joy. And, I'm, and my <laughs> gratitude level is, uh, is, is exploding. There's, a, there's no other way to put it. So thank you so much. This has been a real, okay. real pleasure.
1: Thank you. You know, I, I continue the uh, the legacy of David. You know, I'm, I'm a professor now. Yeah. The work, the work that I did with uh, Brian Eno and David during that time, really impacted on me. So when I when I uh, I got an honorary Bachelor of Arts degree at Stevens Institute of Technology, and I became the distinguished artist in residence. And uh, I opened up the Sound Synthesis Research Center for the Performing Arts. It's wow. basically this gigantic <laughs> playground of like all, and I got Brian Eno's uh, strategy cards framed on you know <laughs> all over the place for, you know for the students. And I formed this uh, little orchestra called the Mini Midi Magic Orchestra. And it's like synthesizing and, and the counterpart to organic instruments. You know, you play guitar, synthesize a guitar. You know you play piano, synthesizers, of course. EWI right. uh, for the horn players, electric. Everything is MIDI. Man. It's important for us to go to underserved community centers. It's important for us to go to old folks home. You know what it's like for old folks to see a guitar playing Mozart or playing string? It's like the first time they saw the Model T or the, or the television. You know, it's important <laughs> for us to give back, to yeah. replenish, you know, children's centers where you can just, any instrument that you play for a recovering child is going to be appreciated not only by the child but by the parents, by the nurses and by the staff, that you would take the time to help their recovery. Music heals. And so all of these things that happen to me, we must give back for the humanity of music. You know, yeah. it's, music is an art form, but it does take the shape of sound. And this issue of the art form of it, it has to be given and appreciated by the masses. So as a kid, I understood the power of music. And so that particular legacy, you know, we string it through all the other artists that we can because they pay us and they pay us well. But in all that pain, we need to kind of be human, give it back and enjoy the true pleasure that music can bring
0: when it's free. Yeah. Carlos, thank you so much. I appreciate the time today. Thank Take care so of yourself. Much. Carlos Alomar will be appearing at the David Bowie World Fan Convention in New York later this month. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. Thanks to z Home Builders for their help. You can help them by going to their website, znmhomes.com. You can follow me on all the socials and reach me at Bax at Rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.